Here we go. Roll Here video. I think anybody creating something new must have an adventure. It's not cinema, it's something else. My advice to a young filmmaker is to make a movie every week. The whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. But suspense is essentially an emotional process. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make films, you gotta make it and get a scene. Cinema for me is a world of when I dream. Hey everybody, welcome to Behind the Slate. I am your host, Aaron Strand, and today my guest is Ken Double. After spending 33 years as a sports broadcaster, he transitioned to becoming a theater organist. He is now the president of the Atlanta chapter of the American Theater Organ Society, and he plays Mighty Mo at the Fox Theater here in Atlanta. Ladies and gentlemen, Ken Double. How are you doing today, Ken? I'm great, Aaron. Thank you for a brilliant introduction. Um, <laughs> it's funny. It wasn't actually a transition. Uh, I grew up in Chicago, became enamored of a guy named Jack Brickhouse, who was the announcer on every sports team we grew up with. Uh, and when I was four and five years old, I pretty well determined in my head I wanted to be a sportscaster. Hmm. When I was eight, I started organ lessons. My parents introduced me and my five older brothers into some semblance of music. And uh, about the time I got to a high school that had a radio station and I was all fired up about this opportunity to start broadcasting on a real radio station, a school teacher at this high school introduced me to the theater organ. I was about ready to quit taking my lessons. As happens with those of us who get involved with the theater organ at a high level, it is literally the wow moment. It's like I could have had a V8. It's like, bang, wow. And so I steered my lessons toward the theater organ. I'd never played a church. I don't play any Bach. I never had a <laughs> piano lesson. I had 10 years of organ lessons. But I have a joke with audiences. If they hung me for being a pianist, they'd hang an innocent man. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I did manage to learn how to play the theater organ. And uh, so here I am after uh, getting paid to watch sporting events, which is a real great way to make a living. I, now yeah, I get to play dumb. Mighty Mo, which is a real great way to, to have a great side gig now, of, you know, basically into semi-retirement. I'm, oh, my gosh. Well, I want to get into all that. But before we get into more of your experience, I just have to ask, and I feel like a lot of listeners need to know, what is a theater organ, and why should we care about it? It's a real interesting story. So there is the family of the pipe organ. The pipe organ dates back to 900, 1,000, the first time they pushed air through whistles to make music. Clearly was developed once J.S. Bach came along. Yeah. So we have a knowledge of the experience of pipe organs at church, they were put in concert halls, mm -hmm. perhaps to perform if the symphony's not performing or with the symphony. They were put in these magnificent municipal auditoriums. So let's go way back over 100 years. Okay. People sitting at home to be entertained, that really didn't happen until the 1930s. Radio didn't become a popular source of sit and listen until the... Communications Act of 1933 regulated radio. Radio was chaos. And that's a really important point that, like, I think I even kind of missed in my Chaplin series when talking about silent films of the teens and 20s. These predated mass radio communication and predated the, you know, the standard radio communication. I think we have this idea, many of us in our heads, that radio came first and then film, but actually it was film then radio. In terms of mass entertainment, absolutely. So, for example, did everybody have a Victrola to play 78 records? Mm. No. Did everybody have a radio to listen to whatever scratchy thing they could dial in on? <laughs> no. And so what did everybody do? They went out to be entertained. So there were concert bands on the weekend in the park. And there were pipe organs in all these auditoriums and all these spaces. Why? If you're generating entertainment, what is an economical way to entertain a group with music? Pay one person to play a big pipe organ. And so from the late 1800s through the early 1900s, towns built these municipal auditoriums. They all had a pipe organ, and there was usually a hired organist was the principal player 
at, uh, at that location. So people heard pipe organ all the time. The church organ and the concert hall and auditorium organ were all pretty much the same thing, the same construction. The theater organ that came along with the movie palace and the silent film, that was a whole different animal that came from the brain of uh, an eccentric inventor by the name of Robert Hope Jones. Yeah. And he was the first guy to put electricity into the pipe organ. And people say, well, what do you mean? Before Hope Jones, the organs were mechanical, completely mechanical. You press a note, it then set off a series of levers, of pulleys, of items, whereby a small piece of wood would slide from underneath the pipe and some guy pumping the air pressure built up to where the pipe was seated, seated in this leather-lined box, the wind would then go up through the pipe and make it speak. My God, so I, I didn't know that. So it's really like there was a guy, sort of like a, a, a like a bagpipe player is filling up a bag and then squeezing it with his arm. There was a guy whose job it was to pump the bag. To make the wind. That's well, incredible. Until the electric motor came along, they had no way to generate wind yeah. pressure. Had to be done by some physical thing. Wow. Folks who might know the Rube Goldberg cartoon series. Rube Goldberg was a was an artist back in the 20s and 30s and 40s. And his series of artwork were all about the most complex way to do the simplest thing. Break an egg, make toast, whatever. Rube Goldberg could have invented the pipe organ because hmm. the way it works. So you have stops. You know the, the phrase, pull out all the stops? That's the pipe organ. You pull out all the stops and it plays at full volume. That's where pull out all the stops comes from. Okay. So you pull out a stop that says flute or you pull out a different stop that says string. All of those interconnections had to be done until Hope Jones electrified the pipe organ. And what he did was he electrified the console. The console is the playing mechanism. The pipes are elsewhere. But the pipes don't speak until somebody seated at the console where the keyboards are presses the notes to make music. Now, I just want to interrupt you here for a second just to give a little bit uh, of background and kind of place us here and, and paint, a, paint a picture, if you will. Mm -hmm. So uh, we got Robert Hope Jones, who's, who's British, and he's, uh, he's living in England for the majority of his life. And he's developing, he, I believe he worked as a, a, a telephone electrician mm -hmm. uh, briefly, even though he was an organist at his local church. And it was through this being a telephone electrician that he kind of learned basic circuitry. And just out of pure gall and curiosity, he started experimenting uh, with his local organ. And his vision was twofold. The first was, is that as you were sort of beginning to describe, that a single instrument could imitate every instrument in an orchestra. That was his first vision. His second was that these could be controlled by movable consoles that weren't fixed in a stationary spot. Is this, is this, do I have That's this correct? That's basically it, yes. So the original organs, the, the, the tracker action organs, that console had to be connected directly to where the pipes were. Once Hope Jones came along, the console could go everywhere. And what did he do to demonstrate his new toy? He moved the console into the garden outside of the church and played the pipe organ from there. <laughs> now, take your mindset back to whatever year that was, 1888, I think, or yeah, anyway, the, yeah. the mid-1880s. Electricity is new. Right. And many, particularly many in the church, thought it was a tool of the devil. <laughs> so on the one hand, here's this great genius. On the other hand... <laughs> You've got all these people who, what have you done? And so that was the first of several marks against Mr. Hope Jones and, and, that and sent I read, him to the United States. Now, now, I read that people were actually going in and sabotaging his early organs. They would go in and bust them up and because they were they thought it was the, these evil inventions that were invading their pristine Anglican churches. Sure. <laughs> and, 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 you know, 140 years later, uh, there are no stranger people on God's green earth than those who are crazy about the pipe organ. 
<laughs> Trust me. I was 10 years president of the American Theater Organ Society, what is it actually an international group that's all about preserving and presenting the theater organ. And I've met a lot of very interesting members of the American Theater Organ Society in my life. <laughs> I have no doubt. So uh, that's why I tell people I was a sportscaster first. <laughs> <laughs> sportscaster and theater organ enthusiast. Indeed. Okay. <laughs> so I, I wanted to talk a couple about a couple other of Hope Jones inventions. Now he, I have here in my notes that he invented the electro pneumatic action. Can you talk, what is the electro pneumatic action? So I just mentioned the tracker action. That's the old fashioned mechanical action. Okay. Electro pneumatic means it's part electricity and part air. When you pressed a note on the tracker action, as I said, it pulled a series of levers. Uh, when you press a note on electro pneumatic, it fires an electrical contact from the keynote to its connection at the back, and then a series of further electrical contacts before it gets to the pipe that is then wind-driven. So it's part electricity, part wind, electro-pneumatic. If you would, can, can you describe for us what this console looks like? So just so that I, we can paint a picture for the audience, because this thing has like more buttons than the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon. So the other thing that Hope Jones invented was the horseshoe shaped curved rail where the stops are above the keyboards. So you look at, and, and so many people say, oh, you play the piano. It kind of looks like a piano, but instead of 88 notes and one keyboard, there are 61 notes and multiple keyboards. So some theater organs were two keyboards or two manuals, some three. Mighty Mo is four. They built some five. They built one at the Chicago Stadium, six keyboard monster theater organ. And these keyboards are stacked on top of each other, almost like, a, on top like, a, like a set of stairs that you're sort of looking exactly. up. It's, truly, it's really impressive and incredible to see. And, uh, yeah, and, and then you have the multicolored tabs, the stop tabs, and each one makes a different voice of the organ speak. And they are multicolored, and the colors are whites for flute, diapason, and a theater organ stop we call the tibia, yellow for strings, red for reeds, and depending on the manufacturer, you had a different color for the um, percussions. So on the theater organ, because it was to be a substitute for the orchestra, you had glockenspiels and xylophones and marimbas and pianos and tambourines and castanets and tap cymbals and bass drums, all of these things tied in to the organ console. It's unreal that one device can do all these things. I also find it so interesting that in our sort of modern era of minimalist design, you know, where Apple is like trying to make everything as sleek as possible, this is like the exact opposite. You know, this is sort of peak technology and it is visually complex and visually ornate. Uh, it's just really impressive and just so different than our modern expectations. So church consoles don't have the horseshoe and don't have the multicolored tabs. They have the draw knobs. Many of them, you don't even see the console the way they have constructed the church. Right. The theater, and particularly the movie palace, was totally different. So as we moved from Nickelodeons and people discovered, ooh, people like these film things. <laughs> All of a sudden, theaters began being built and then bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where we had the Atlanta Fox. We had the Roxy in New York. Eventually, we had Radio City Music Hall. These were all 4,000 and 5,000 and 6,000 seat theater structures. And thus, the organs got bigger and bigger. And the theaters got incredibly ornate, and they didn't want their organ console to look staid and uh, and uh, not match the decor, so the consoles got crazy. 
it's so cool how these consoles really become a part of the showmanship. And having just seen you perform the score for Charlie Chaplin's The Gold Rush, it really is part of the show. I mean, you're watching the film, the film is washing over you, and yet you're also fully consciously aware that a live musician is controlling the sounds you're hearing. It was part of what made the development of the theater organ fascinating in that as they moved from Nickelodeons where any kind of flickering picture, street scenes, city scenes, two people dancing, whatever, was fascinating because people didn't see it the first time. Imagine, imagine you walk into a Nickelodeon for the first time and somebody has taken a picture of an onrushing train. And the first thing you're going to do is gasp and duck down to the floor right? right. because here comes this train coming right at you. Yeah. But now you get to 1909, 1910, 1912, and now the movies are becoming sophisticated and they're telling stories and there's action and acting and everything else, but it's silent. So you can't go to the theater and hear uh, an eloquent actor or actress speaking lines or an opera and hear the music. It's silent. So you need something to help interpret the action on the screen. And at the Nickelodeon, piano would be just fine. In a big theater, piano is going to get lost. And to have an orchestra play, and orchestras played a lot of silent film, but that was expensive and it was unruly just in creating enough music for 12 musicians, 15 musicians, 20 musicians to all be in sync for a film that's going to play for three days and then there's going to be a new one come through. Right, right. So it was an interesting thing that developed with this theater organ again financially economically one person not 12 or 15 or 20 to make music for the silent film on this instrument that filled the room with music it almost reminds me this is going to be a weird metaphor but in many ways it reminds me almost like a bonsai tree in that there were all these limitations, all these, whether they were structural limitations, business limitations, all these forces kind of pushing and constraining. And underneath this incredible pressure of this burgeoning new technology, the theater organ grew into this beautiful, ornate, very precious thing um, that couldn't have existed under any other climactic circumstances. Exactly. There would have been no need to create a theater organ if there hadn't been silent film, movie palaces, the spectacular growth of silent film, and this economic need for the theater operator to figure out how financially, how can I make this work? Right. And, uh, it, it, and so there was this meteoric rise. In 1924 and 25, the company that Hope Jones partnered with, the Wurlitzer Company, they were shipping one complete pipe organ a day out of their factory in North Tonawana, New York. Now, you think about that. If you're working with a church committee and you're buying a new pipe organ for your church, you sign the contract and you might have your organ playing in 10 to 12 months. <laughs> they were shipping one a day out of their factory. Many of them were small, right? two keyboards, eight sets of pipes uh, being two strings, uh, a diapason. A diapason is the normal sound you hear at church. It's the foundation sound of the church organ for playing hymns and things like that. And then uh, a tibia, and then you'd have a clarinet and a funny little reed called a kenura, which is used for a lot of comedic touches. Hmm. And then a tuba to give it some, some but, but it would be six sets of pipes, and then all the percussions. Understand the Wurlitzer Company, the name that means music, to millions. That was their slogan. <laughs> uh, the Wurlitzer family came out of Germany. They were fine violin makers. They became piano makers. And then these outdoor band organs became popular. Hmm. You could go to a park and you could see this great big huge with a very ornate front band organ. And it was part pipes, part drums and xylophones, and part everything else. And it could be played on a role player mechanism. <laughs> so Wurlitzer built these things, and thus to transition to the theater organ was relatively simple because they were already building machines that were wind-driven with pipes, but also were mechanically driven to make drums play, make xylophones play, make glockenspiels play. Um, and so they were transitioning from this 
to this, and they became the number one maker of theater organs and the number one name in the world of the theater organ. Now, you talk about they're shipping out one a day, and some of these pipes for these for the big theater organs are absolutely huge. I mean, 32 feet? 32 feet long. And, Many and the, of them 16. Not every organ had a 32-foot stop. Right. But some of the biggest organs had a 32-foot stop. And what blew me away in doing the research for this interview is that I have this idea of uh, in a church of metal pipes, but these 32-foot pipes were wood. Yes, <laughs> this is just, I mean, I find and this they incredible. Were, they were another creation of Robert Hope Jones. Those were the diaphones. What's a diaphone? It's a great big wooden pipe played under tremendous wind pressure. Hope Jones experimented with wind pressure. So wind pressure, we measure it in inches. And that's based on, on water pressure level, how much water you pump into a thing and how much you get the water to go. So it's, So most church organs play on six inches of wind pressure. Uh, maybe eight inches of wind pressure for a trumpet stop or something like that. What would be what would be sort of the equivalent that we could say like this is how loud eight inches of wind pressure is? Is it would it be like just sort of like hearing a trumpet in a park or something? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you want to if you want to compare it to how much wind, let's say six inches of wind would be about. Uh, your hair dryer times five, uh, five hundred. Hair dryer times five hundred. Yeah. Okay. So now, Hope Jones is playing with 10 and 12 and 15 inches of wind pressure. So you're talking about two and two and a half times what was going on with the church. Think about what your blower mechanism had to put out in terms of a constant amount of wind pressure. So now you're talking about thousands of hair dryers. You get a 32-foot tall wooden stop that at the top is bigger than your dining table completely square. You could easily slide two or three people in the top of one of these diaphones, of which we have 12 at the Atlanta Fox. If people go to the Fox and hear me finish a pre-show with George on my mind and hear the very last notes and the whole building shakes, that's thanks to the 32-foot diaphone. And um, what Hope Jones was thinking about was that very thing. How can I impact the theater with volume? And these diaphones literally... Even at the 16-foot pitch, if they're big enough and under enough wind pressure, will make a building shake. were the original subwoofers. <laughs> Mother Nature's subwoofers. So, which takes the theater organ to uh, two interesting things. One, uh, the forerunner to what we have today as um, computer-driven sound effects. They could make all of these different sounds. Glockenspiel, piano, marimba, drums, cymbals, clarinets, flutes, trumpets, uh, all imitative of the orchestra all at the control of one keyboard. And then in the theater, about 98% of the time, the pipes were in rooms called chambers on either side, left or right, of the proscenium. So the music was coming out as what, audience? Stereo. Mm. You're hearing it separated by left side and right side. Oh, wow. I have an interesting little gimmick I like to play with the audiences. The beautiful big sonorous tuba on Mighty Mo is in the right side of the organ. There are three chambers stacked on each other on the right side because Mo is so big. 42 sets of pipes, not six or eight or ten. And there are two chambers stacked on the left side. Well, the trumpet is on the left side. So I will get the audience playing ping pong by taking the melody on the trumpet and then play it for eight measures and then take the melody for eight measures on the tuba. And all of a sudden, they're hearing the main melody come from one side or the other at the Fox. But 
almost all of the theater organs were installed in chambers on either side of the proscenium. Yeah, we think of stereo sound as such a uh, digital or at the very least sort of a, a more modern experience. But here is a completely analog Mother Nature's stereo experience. It's just incredible. The theater organ is a fascinating musical instrument. And as you say, nobody knows about it. We're a little lucky in Atlanta in that if you say to somebody, you know what a theater pipe organ is? And they say, oh, you mean like a church? No, like at the Atlanta Fox. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. In Phoenix, if you say, do you know what a theater pipe organ is? And they say, oh, you mean like a church? And you say, no, like at Organ Stop Pizza. Organ Stop Pizza is a pizza parlor. It seats 600 people. It has a balcony around the <laughs> outer edge. And it has what was at one time uh, the world's largest theater organ. They kept adding and adding and adding and adding to maintain themselves as the world's largest theater organ. And so the draw is a family-style pizza restaurant and this enormous Wurlitzer pipe organ. I have some friends uh, out in Phoenix who I know listen to the show, so please go, let me know. Check out Organ Stop. It's unbelievable. How does it sound? How's the pizza is what I really want to know. The pizza's pretty good. Oh, good. Hey, listen, they've been in business for 45 years. Listen, I'm sold on the theater organ as being one of the greatest musical instrument creations of all time. It strikes me that with the theater organ, there's a and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that there's a challenge in that you're taking what could potentially be an orchestral score for a film. And it seems to me that you're having to make choices as to what you're playing and when or what what within the score you're emphasizing when. Is that true? And then also what, what kind of make, is the mark of a great theater organist? Well, uh, so you have concert players and you have silent film players. They're, they're, they are different. In terms of the silent film players, the great ones, first and foremost, must have either a great degree of empathy or they have to be so robotic that they can say, okay, at this moment, on this measure, I'm going to open the volume controls this far and make it this loud and going to play this stop and that stop. We have some of those that have absolutely no internal empathy or feeling for what's going on the screen, but they know that technically I must do this. Not very many of them. But the best players, the first thing that they understand is they are underscoring what's happening on the screen. And so there must be an empathetic feel for either the thrill, the chase, the comedy, the love, the tragedy, whatever. Mm. So the first thing that happens, it comes from the soul. Then you begin to understand how to create the music to make it work. So the great theater organist is a musical scorer, but then... They have to be an arranger and an orchestrator because all those little stops and all those push buttons, that's your orchestra of sound. That's the palette from which you are musically painting. And so I, I joke sometimes, and I got to be careful because great pianists are great pianists. But if they are Steinway artists, they walk into an auditorium and there sits their Steinway piano and the touch might be a little different. The acoustic of the room might be a little different, but a Steinway piano is a Steinway piano is a Steinway piano. There are no two theater organs alike, even if they are Wurlitzer stock model 260. There is always something different about the instrument and clearly something different about how it reacts in the room. And most times the organist is in the worst seat in the house, buried in the orchestra pit while the music is aimed to the audience many feet behind them. Yeah, I unabashedly tell people that the greatest keyboard artists in the world are our best theater organists because nobody has to do what they do. It's truly mind-blowing. And even I feel sort of stupid realizing this, but as a listener, you forget that something as simple as controlling the volume also falls under the organist's purview and that you're you're riding this giant mechanical beast to make it all happen. I mean, it's just, it's it's jaw-dropping. I wrote a piece once for our ATOS, American Theater Organ Society Journal, and it was the 17 brain functions going on all at once when you play the theater organ. If you're a concert player, the first brain function is memory because you will have memorized the music. Most of our players do not have music on the rack. Hmm. Silent film players, it's different. But concert players, 
so you know the music. Your right hand is the singer. What we do is interpret melody. So let's say we're playing one of the main themes from the Broadway show, The Phantom of the Opera. So your right hand is doing what the singer's doing. Sometimes with one single note, like the melody note, sometimes with chords with the melody note. Sure. Your left hand and your left foot, your left foot is the bass line. Think of a jazz band or a swing band or a rock band. Your left foot is the bass line. Your left hand is doing chords and the harmonies that support the singer. So that's where I talk about what playing the theater organ is. We're a singer and the group accompanying the singer. So now your right foot is controlling these accelerator pedals like a car. You push the gas pedal on the car, the car goes faster. You push the gas pedal on a pipe organ, it opens these Venetian blind-like devices that allow the sound to come into the room. The organ pipes all speak at full volume. You huh. don't control the wind pressure in and out, you change the tuning of the pipes when you change the wind pressure. So when you activate middle C of the clarinet and that little pallet drops from under the pipe and the wind goes through, it's the pipe at its loudest. Mm -hmm. If you were to sit inside the chamber and listen to an organ, you'd be dashing out of there in about a second and a half because it's a cacophony of nonsense. <laughs> but by the time it mixes and comes out into the room, so at the front, of the room behind all that fancy grill work at the Fox hmm. are these Venetian blind like devices that open and close and I control them with my right foot. So now the other brain function are all those stops. When do you use the tuba voice? When do you use the trumpet voice? When do you use more strings? When do you want the glockenspiel to ping? That's the arranging part of it and the conducting part of it. Now here's one. So you've got your right hand doing this. If you're playing a jazz piece, uh, think of um, Don't Get Around Much Anymore, a famous uh, Duke Ellington piece. Da, 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 da. Uh, miss the Saturday night. And then there's a space. Well, the arranger for the orchestra is filling in those spaces. So I have to not only play the melody, but then my hand jumps up to another keyboard to fill in the spaces. The left hand plays chords, but there is a gimmick again, thank you, Mr. Hope Jones, called Second Touch. And Second Touch, if you push really hard on the note, you dip down and create a second contact, which brings in a second voice. So sometimes French horns and trombones in an orchestra are playing a counter melody underneath the main melody. Hmm. We can do that with Second Touch. So now my left hand is split in two. <laughs> Some fingers are playing the chords. Other fingers are pressing harder to make and activate this second touch. It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting anxiety just thinking yeah. about everything that's going yeah. on. Now, you currently play, like we've mentioned many times, Mighty Mo here at the Fox Theater. Now, I would like to ask you, let's give the people you know, a brief history of the Fox. You know, I was actually talking to a friend from Los Angeles the other day, and, um, you know, so many people from LA are coming to Atlanta these days to, you know, shoot movies or take advantage of our tax credits. And the fact that I mentioned that we have uh, uh, two remaining theaters from the 30s just blew their mind. They thought, oh, I didn't think there was any sort of film infrastructure in Atlanta. Uh, and it's this, if you haven't been here, if you, have, if you don't live here or haven't visited, uh, you don't know it exists. So, what is the Fox Theater? So the Fox Theater wasn't intended to be a theater at all. <laughs> Figure that out. The nobles of the Mystic Shrine, the Shriners, this was their, going to be their home. Atlanta was growing. There were some 5,000 Shriners at the time, and uh, they built these big shrine auditorium meeting places all over the country. And these are the guys with the, the fez hats who the do the children. The fez hats. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, e and even though they, they have this sort of this Arabic motif, they're, uh, it's an American group that was founded yes. in the 1880s, I think. I mean, they're an offshoot of the Masons. The Masons go back to George Washington sure, and, sure. And, and Britain. So they decide we're going to build this fantastic space for our members and for our gatherings and whatever. They, their eyes got bigger than their wallets. <laughs> and so as they're constructing this thing, they're realizing they're not going to be able to get there. And it makes sense that their eyes got bigger than their wallets because this is 
like 1927, 28? 27 and 28, yeah. yeah well, they so. actually started uh, acquiring land and, and getting into the drawings and, and all that uh, about 1924. Okay. 25. Okay, so this is Roaring Twenties, and they're they're peaking on the Roaring Twenties mindset here. And I'll guarantee you most of these people were probably enjoying the fruits of the stock market's labors in those days. For and sure. Everything was going up, 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 and, uh, and so there was a lot of money to be had. But they had designed something that, oh, my God, oh, my God, so the cost overruns brought William Fox to the table, uh, who was um, building his empire of Fox theaters. This is 20th Century Fox. This is that William Fox. Exactly. Name lives on as Fox Broadcasting, Fox News. It all goes back to this guy who was a, a studio baron. Started with Nickelodeons. Right. And then began building theaters and began producing films. And this would be his great theater in the South. So he had built the great Fox theaters around the country, the Detroit Fox, the St. Louis Fox, the Brooklyn Fox, the San Francisco Fox. St. Louis and Detroit still exist, and they're absolutely identical theaters. Hmm. They were designed and outfitted. Mrs. William O. Fox traveled to Italy to pick out the furniture and other uh, intricacies for the uh, creation of the theaters. Right. So the Atlanta Fox was obviously different in its design, and uh, he had Wurlitzer organs in almost all of his theaters, but he inherited the Moeller organ because that's who the Shriners had contracted for uh, or with to uh, put a pipe organ in. So it becomes a movie theater vaudeville live entertainment space, with the Shrine organization under contract allowed to use the theater on a regular basis for their meetings and ceremonies and other things. The Shriners are now basically like paying rent <laughs> to like to use this space, sort of. Almost kind of, sort of. Yeah, yeah, they're kind of a partnership. But they have left their mark on this incredible structure. Can you describe it a little bit and like why it's so uh, tied to the Shriners? Well, it, it and it goes back to a, a couple of things. One... By the 1920s, they had discovered King Tut's tomb. There was a lot of fascination with the East mm. and uh, with all of that. And uh, so the Shrine organization, they adopted some of that. And so when they hired the uh, architectural firm, they basically told them, in not so many words, out Baghdad, Baghdad. And they created what, if you step into the Fox, you think you're going indoors, but you've gone outdoors. You have the sky blue ceiling, the stars that twinkle, the clouds that float by. This was a design called atmospheric. There were a couple of great designers of atmospheric theaters, and it was a cheaper way to go because you didn't have to create an ornate ceiling. All sure. you had to do was paint it dark blue. Sure. <laughs> uh, and so they created what looked like a Moorish courtyard. So this is 1929. The first great ornate movie palaces date to 1916 and 17. Right. So it's just growing and growing and growing. And so here's a town, Atlanta at the time was, uh, I'm not even sure it was 100, uh, 150, 180,000 people, maybe at the most. I mean, we're only, um, what, 70 years removed from the Civil War, Yeah. which, you know, they talk, you talk about the burning of Atlanta in the Civil War. Atlanta was a railway hub in the Civil yep. War. It was not mm -hmm. some metropolitan center. It right. was a, a small rail city that grew exponentially during the war. But still, you have to factor in that this is a, a city that within a single person's lifetime had rebuilt and was slowly growing as an economic center. At the same time, by the time the Fox came along, it already had Lowe's Grand, it already mm -hmm. had the Paramount, it already had the Rialto, it already had many movie palaces. But in this bigger is better, along came the Fox and its 5,000 seats. It was unbelievable. It was uh, no one had ever quite seen anything like it to the point where officials from New York City came down to see this Atlanta Fox with its six lifts in the orchestra pit and on the stage. And they went home and designed Radio City Music Hall. And so uh, it was an influential entity on many, many levels. It opens Christmas Day, 1929, two months after the crash. <laughs> Within a matter of years, William Fox is broke. <laughs> The theater is on the auction block. It's purchased for $75,000 in back taxes. <laughs> it's just crazy. Yeah. And, and yet went through several different management and ownership and operation groups. Uh, but 
became a center of entertainment for all kinds of things, including the Egyptian ballroom, which became in the 30s and 40s the place to go dancing. Yeah, it was like the hot club of Atlanta in yep. the 30s and 40s. It was yep. the, the magic city of the yep. 30s and 40s. <laughs> and then, you know, to fast forward to the early 70s and think they almost tore it down. Yeah. So like you were saying, it went through all these different sort of entertainments. It kind of had a, like a rock years where a lot of rock bands were coming through and Elvis plays there and the Allman Brothers play there and all that sort of stuff. But in the early 70s, it's really started to fall apart. The theater's in bad shape. Uh, one. Two, television, the flight to the suburbs. Nobody was going to see movies in a 5,000 seat 1920s movie palace. Midtown was not the Midtown we know today at all. And so um, Southern Bell, the telephone company, wanted to build a new headquarters, and they wanted to build it on the site of the Fox Theater. And that helped to generate the Save the Fox campaign. There are great stories about kids, little kids, six-year-old kids, emptying their piggy banks. People would write on their telephone bills, right? don't tear down the fox, save the fox. Yeah. Maynard Jackson was the mayor at the time, and this is a very interesting social story. Maynard Jackson, as a young black man, could not walk in the front door of the Fox Theater to buy a ticket to go see a, an event. There was the quote-unquote colored section, and it was a side door entrance. This was the segregated South. And so here's a guy who's the mayor of Atlanta, who really doesn't necessarily want to have a lot of love for the Fox Theater, except he's visionary enough to know we're going to spend $40 million and build something that can't be anything like this place. And he understood that there is value in saving this theater. Mm -hmm. So here's a key guy who could have said, you bet, tear down that palace of racism, right? but didn't. Got to give Maynard Jackson a lot of credit. It's a long, long story. Part of the contract where Atlanta Landmarks bought out the, the building, they had a debt to pay off, and they had six months to pay it off. And if they missed a deadline, the deal was off, and the theater reverts back to the previous ownership, and they tear it down. The Atlanta chapter of the American Theater Organ Society, not once, but twice, pumped a bunch of money into Atlanta Landmarks to help them maintain their path to saving the theater. Why? <laughs> because we love the theater organ. And we, and we obviously love Mighty Mo, but we can't have our play toy if we lose our playpen. <laughs> and so we take great pride in having helped facilitate the saving of the fox. So they are able to tear up the mortgage. They take on the theater. Now they got to fix it up. They got to book it. They got to, but all of a sudden, when lots of the naysayers were saying, nobody's going to go down to Midtown and walk into that filthy, dirty old theater and want to see a show. Just the opposite. Right. And now it's one of the most successful theaters in all of North America and all of the world. Absolutely. Just an incredible story. Now, there's also this character that is intrinsically tied with this story, Joe Patton. Uh, can you talk, tell me a little bit about, uh, about Joe Patton and sure. sort of his role within this? Joe Patton was an engineer, had a career in, uh, in business, and, uh, but he was pipe organ crazy. And in the <laughs> 1950s, Mighty Mo kind of played and kind of played, but it was deteriorating. Understand this electro-pneumatic action we were talking about before. Out of the bottom of the console was a main cable, which consisted of thousands of white cotton-covered wire. And every wire went to a key on the keyboard or a stop on the stop tab or made the pistons fire or whatever. What could go wrong? With the console going <laughs> up and down and up and down and up and down for 30 years. And so it was literally becoming unplayable. So now you get to the early 60s and... Um, Joe Patton convinces them that if you'll pay for the supplies, I'll get volunteers and we'll restore the organ. And they rewired that whole pipe organ. It took them over a year, but they got Mighty Mo fully playing again. And that's how Joe Patton got involved in the Fox. Then, because he is who he is with the skills he has, he sees, oh, the exit sign's out. So he gets up on a ladder. He fixes the exit sign. <laughs> he sees this isn't working. You know, he goes over and fixes that. And he becomes 
absolutely essential to the operation of the fox because he can kind of figure out how to fix anything. And he becomes the phantom of the fox to the point where after Atlanta Landmarks takes over, they sign a contract with him that he can live in the building. He creates an apartment above in what were offices for the Shrine Organization. And he lives in the building. Not once, twice, he saved it from fire. Hmm. The restaurant on the corner caught fire. He called the fire department, told them, don't put any water over here. That's where the pipes for the pipe organ are. Shoot the water that way. <laughs> and then there was a smaller fire on the stage that happened. Twice he saved the building from fire. There were lots and lots of key people. There were key people financially. You got a guy named Ed Neese who came in in the early 80s as the general manager. He set the financial tone for operating the theater and how they would work more as a rental house instead of producing their own shows. Let somebody else take the risk take the rental money. Ed Neese was a genius. Bob Foreman, Joe Patton's good friend, the attorney, was involved in negotiations, later became the president of Atlanta Landmarks and president of the board of the Fox. There are dozens of key names that helped save the Fox, but nobody more key than Joe Patton, because Joe could make things happen in the theater. And Joe got involved because of Mighty Moe. The first thing he fixed was the pipe organ. So what makes Mighty Moe so special as a pipe organ. It gets down to the voices that the theater organ can create, coupled with the dynamic of the room. If I were to name my favorite theater organs in the country, there's one of the Wurlitzer make that stands out head and shoulders over them all, and it's in Shea's Buffalo Theater in downtown Buffalo, New York. Their version of the Atlanta Fox. Mike Shea was the impresario, and he said to the Wurlitzer company, I'll put a Wurlitzer pipe organ in every one of my theaters under one condition, you install with your people and you do it to my design. Mike Shea said, if this is supposed to be like an orchestra, look at an orchestra. What do you see more of than anything else? Strings. So he designed his Shea's Buffalo organ with more string ranks of pipes, more string stops and sounds than anything else. There is a richness that comes out of that organ and it's full, and it grabs you, and it's, it's, it's the most stunning experience in a theater next to the Fox. Now, that organ is 28 sets of pipes. The Fox organ is 42 sets of pipes. So think of size of an orchestra. And you have a combination of several things. One, this huge organ on huge wind pressure to make a huge effect in the room. Two, you have shallow enough pipe chambers that the, the sound doesn't get lost in the chamber before it comes out into the room. Three, the biggest Wurlitzers have maybe 90 of these swell shades I told you about that control the volume. The Fox has about 120. So if you were seated in the front of the balcony and looking left and right behind all that fancy grill work where the pipes are. If we were to turn the work lights on in the room and I were to hit that accelerator pedal and open all of the shades, you'd gasp because the entire wall opens up, which means all of that sound doesn't get trapped in the pipe chamber. It comes pouring into the room. The impact this instrument has in that room is unsurpassed in any theater in the world. I don't care what organ you've got. There is nothing that makes a statement musically in the room that that organ makes in the Fox. That's why I'm the luckiest organist on God's green earth, because they pay me to play it. <laughs> I can attest to that. When I was in high school, our teacher brought us to see a Broadway tour of Little Shop of Horrors. Already I'm walking into the Fox Theater for the first time. And the way we did, you know, the way you brilliantly described it, you know, as this sort of Moorish courtyard, I mean, it is it's staggering. It's it's unbelievable how incredible this theater is. It is so beautiful. It's an overwhelming experience. It, unreal. I mean, I'm, I'm getting goosebumps just remembering what it was like to walk in for the first time. And I'm sitting there and the pipe organ starts to play and it plays and plays. And as it gets to this crescendoing moment when all of a sudden the whole building is shaking and it's getting louder than you could have ever comprehended it would get. I can remember it like it was yesterday of just going... <gasps> 
and then the lights go out and then the the show starts you know it's just a, it's just pure theater in a, in the best way it is a bucket list location for organists we have some church organists who don't play theater organ but they've known of mighty mo and they say oh god could i come in and try out mighty mo of course when do you want to come yes please <laughs> so just uh, earlier in january uh, a couple uh, friends that I have in Zanesville, Ohio, he has a small, well, no, a pretty good-sized Wurlitzer pipe organ in his house. That's how crazy some of us get. <laughs> and he plays quite well, and so he had the opportunity to sit down and play. And one of the things I like to joke about, so a big Wurlitzer organ might have 220 of these stop tabs that controlled the voices of the instrument. Mo today, after the rebuild of, 19, of 2020, has 415 stop taps <laughs> controlling its 42 ranks and 3,634 pipes. They play and then they play and then they keep hitting more buttons and they keep hitting more stops and it keeps getting louder and bigger and louder and bigger. And I just smile and say, yes, it is the gift that keeps on giving. You almost can't, can't run out of pipe organ with Mighty Mo. And yet you can take it down to a whisper. Its dynamic uh, range is two decibels to hundreds of decibels. Uh, it's uh, it's it's unbelievable. I mean, how how long have you been playing Mighty Mo now? Well, when I, I moved here in 2010, Larry Douglas Embry was the organist at the time, uh, the late Larry Douglas Embry, and uh, I one of the things I did when I moved here because at the time I was the president of the American Theater Organ Society and I was a concert touring artist and I wrote Larry a long letter and said, listen. That's your job, and it's your job until it's not your job. I have a nice job, and I get to play places. I am not after your job. I felt that was a respectful thing to do, the right thing to do. That position is not unlike the great play-by-play -play broadcasters right. who get into a big league position, and they guard that thing with their life. Of course. So um, we developed a very good relationship, and when he had to be out of town or later his health got iffy, uh, I had the opportunity to substitute. So I started substituting on Mo maybe in 2012. Mm. And then uh, he, got, uh, he got pretty sick for a while. So I was playing fairly regularly for several months. And then he came back. Uh, and then he retired in December of 2016. That's when I started playing regularly with another fellow named Rick McGee. And then uh, Larry Douglas died in February of 17. Interesting man, very talented musician. And so I've been playing Mo since 2000, late in 2016. And uh, Rick McGee retired last uh, April. So I'm now playing Mo for almost all the events that it's played, which is 120 to 140 nights a year. Wow. I mean, does it ever does it ever get old? <laughs> oh, God, no. No, 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 no. Not, uh, no. Um, it's interesting. So we'll play, as you described, 30 minutes of walk-in music for a Broadway house. And it's not at all unusual to have the performers or the musicians touring with the Broadway company to just be fascinated with Mighty Mo. And so, oh my golly, this is, you know, unbelievable. What a great piece of tradition, you know. We never get tired of showing her off. I never get tired of hearing the reaction when I play uh, Georgia on my mind and hit the down button on the lift and uh, we descend and people start hooting and hollering and screaming. And no, that never gets old. And it's a great, oh, so I discover theater organ when I'm 14. And I join the American Theater Organ Society that puts out a journal every other month. Couldn't wait to get my new journal, and on the cover would be some fabulous console of some great theater pipe organ and some theater, Lord knows. Little could I ever have dreamt that I would be seated at maybe the most glorious four-manual console ever created and then playing this unbelievable instrument. I mean, dreams do come true even when you get into your late 60s and somebody says, here, would you like this job? Here, have it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, and here's my invoice. Thank you. <laughs> Before the restoration and renovation, there were six buttons that were what we call generals. Generals, a piston that controls all the stops. So if I want to go from a really big sound to a real quiet sound, I can hit piston number five or six and have full organ. But then I can go down to piston number one and all of a sudden with a big chunk, 
instantaneously it gets quiet. So I'm setting those pistons, but there were only six controlling at that time 376 stops. That left us hogtied. Mm. We, it was difficult to get to all of the musical resources. Now we have 24 general pistons. Oh, wow. We have 10 per keyboard. We have unleashed the musical resources of this instrument that were buried because we just couldn't get to them. Now we can get to them. It's so much fun to play that organ and have the audience bounce back and forth. The possibilities in terms of arranging my orchestra are absolutely endless. And no other organ like it in the world. There's nothing of 42 ranks of 415 stop tabs in the world that creates the sound that that thing creates in the room. I'm going to tell you, somebody might get mad at me, but the Wurlitzer at Radio City is bigger. It's 56 ranks. But it's a real ho hum organ to play. Whoa, shots fired! <laughs> it's true. Why? Why is that? Why do you uh, think that one, is? One, you really are buried. Two, that sunburst effect uh, of the uh, interior of Radio City—that wasn't the original concept. Hmm. The original concept was going to be traditional movie palace, and then they changed to Art Deco after they'd started building the theater. Huh? They had already put the pipe chambers in place. Once they put the sunburst effect in, it dropped the sound of the organ. The organ couldn't get out. There is one chamber they actually microphone through speakers. It's so amazing to think about. And of course, this is just standard practice within an orchestral space. I know there's been a lot of talk about the, the Getty Hall at uh, Lincoln Center recently mm -hmm. being retuned to provide a better sound. But that the instrument doesn't stop at the instrument because the entire building is the acoustic chamber. It, it's like you are walking into the body of an acoustic guitar, sitting down and watching a show, and the entire acoustic body of that acoustic guitar is going to vibrate with sound. And that is part of the instrument just as much as the strings vibrating on the fretboard are. And so you just can't lose sight of how important just the casing, the, the actual building is to creating the tone. There is a great story. I don't know if it's true. I was not there. So Tony Bennett is in concert. And he did an encore piece and dropped the microphone on the floor and sang with just the piano. No amplification whatsoever. And the fox carried the sound. What did they know a hundred years ago that they haven't the first foggiest clue about today? I'll tell you, so we have digital theater organs today. Imitations of the big pipe organs made by a couple of different companies. And our chapter has a relationship with a wonderful man named Norm Easterbrook who runs River Center in Columbus. River Center is three theaters under one roof. There is a beautiful concert hall with a Letourneau pipe organ, and the Letourneau pipe organ is a tracker. It is a mechanical pipe organ. The wind runs by an electric motor, mm. but the action of the organ is as it was in box days. And then uh, the big Broadway theater, the Bill Hurd Theater, is about 2,200 seats, and our digital organ that is played through its own set of speakers sounds like a million dollars in that room. So whoever designed River Center in 2002 and 2003, they knew what they were doing because the acoustical properties in that theater, big theater, gorgeous theater with a real movie palace touch to it, spectacular. Some people know what they're doing. <laughs> I'll have to check that out. It's not a lost art yet. Thank God. Oh, no. No. <laughs> We've mentioned multiple times about the American Theater Organ Society. Can you tell me what is the American Theater Organ Society? When did it start and how did you get involved? 1955, a group of people from around the country started passing a newsletter around about this organ and that organ. They were movie palace nuts and they were crazy about the theater organ. And by this time, their theaters were being torn down. A lot of times the organ got torn down with the theater. A group of them met in Los Angeles in 1955 and started what then was called ATOE, the American Theater Organ Enthusiasts. <laughs> Enthusiasts was not, didn't sound real, you know, official and stuff. So they changed it to Theater Organ Society in the late 60s. And at the time, it developed with, uh, oh, they had 6,000 members maybe nationwide. Mm. And they started uh, hosting conventions and they started creating chapters. Uh, the very first local chapter was created in uh, New England. The Atlanta chapter actually was born as the southeastern chapter of ATOS in 1964. There is the uh, 
Alabama chapter that is anchored around the Alabama Theater in Birmingham, and it's fabulous Wurlitzer organ. Mm. Uh, we nickname them in the South. We have Mighty Mo. That one's called Big Bertha. <laughs> and it's a great Wurlitzer organ, and it's a great sound in the theater. And that theater became Birmingham landmarks on advice and a lot of interaction with the Atlanta group as to, hey, how do we go about saving this theater and this pipe organ? Mm. And the same thing. It was the organ people first. We can't lose our pipe organ, and therefore we can't lose our theater, the play toy and the playpen idea. At one point in time, we had over 60 chapters. We have uh, maybe 45 chapters functioning now. I was one of the youngest when I first got involved. By the, I joined ATOS maybe when I was 15 or 16. Wow. So I'm 70 now. I'm still one of the youngest. <laughs> so we, our, our membership has diminished greatly. People don't join things today like they used to. So uh, one of the things we need to do is shift from being a membership-based group to being an instrument-based group. We're very fortunate at the Fox to have a board of directors and a management that loves the pipe organ. They dropped a half a million dollars on the console restoration. Wow. That's a commitment. Fortunately, the Fox has the resources to be able to do these things to keep their theater looking like it opened yesterday. Our organization needs to work with theater management much more closely to keep the organs playing. We may end up with 500 members nationally, but we're still going to have the instruments out there in public spaces. There are maybe 225 to 250. We haven't done a full accounting of that for a long time. There may be 600 worldwide that still play either in somebody's basement or, you know, whatever. To me, we'd be best served to get relationships strong with theaters so that they will see the advantage of using their pipe organ. It's such an incredible story because, you know, people. so many people are thinking about, you know, historical preservation, historical restoration. We see the effect that saving these buildings can have on downtown revitalization, that it's so much better than uh, what it was going to be, which was a parking deck, and that these instruments being so intrinsically tied to the buildings are such a part of that preservation story. And the fact that you guys are here, you know, fighting for that fight is really important. Now, where can people find out more? And is there any way that people can get involved or help in this mission to save these instruments? Absolutely. So uh, we are the Atlanta chapter of ATOS and online we are atosatlanta.org. Being the president of the chapter, the past president of the national organization, I have a wonderful pathway to the Fox. And so our relationship with the Fox is terrific. But outside of those two checks we wrote way back in the 1970s, um, we're an outside support entity that loves the Fox and loves Mighty Mo. But we have a Page Theater pipe organ that we own and installed at Stevenson High School in Stone Mountain. We own three digital electronic organs. We have one at the Strand Theater in Marietta. They've done 55 silent films over the last five or six years. The Strand is a fabulous supporter, and that's Andy Gaines, who's the general manager there, executive director, and their board of directors, and a guy named Ron Carter, who's a key member of ATOS Atlanta. Very good player. He plays most of the silent films at the Strand. He's brilliant. Mm. Um, and then we have the organ at the Plaza Theater, where I played for Phantom of the Opera on National Silent Film Day and then the Gold Rush uh, in December. And we're playing Wings on March the 9th, Thursday night. The uh, Plaza does its films quarterly on Thursday nights. And so Wings, the great silent classic, will screen at the Plaza March the 9th, Thursday night at 730. That's the next one there. Uh, Flesh and the Devil uh, is being screened with Ron Carter at the organ February the 12th at the Strand in Marietta. And then we have this instrument in Columbus where the management there, they, they named it. They said, nobody knows what a theater organ is. We're going to put a name on it. And our first reaction was, hmm, okay, but he's right. Nobody knows what a theater organ is. So they call it the wave. Come hear the wave. It washes glorious sound over you. <laughs> and so they're, they're, they're promoting everything. And it says the wave with a picture of the console. Oh, and my God. It's brilliant. I love it. And their silent film audiences are growing. 
Wow. And uh, uh, it, 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 that's Norm Easterbrook, a, a brilliant manager, of uh, an executive director of what's going on there. And he's really embraced the organ there. So we have a lot of activity. And so if people want to come to an event, they can go to atosatlanta.org and see our schedule. And then there's an opportunity to join the organization. And again, most of our people don't play. We have a few, we have a handful of players. We have a few pretty good players, but most of our people just enjoy the history and enjoy the music. And so once a month, our group has a meeting someplace and somebody plays for about an hour and uh, we enjoy the music, have some snacks, chit chat, whatever. And then sometimes we'll have a big concert. We have a big scholarship fundraising concert at the page to uh, provide a $1,500 scholarship to a music student at Stevenson High School. And that's going to be a great concert, April the 29th. Fantastic. Sounds like a great time. (laughs) It is a great time with uh, some great people and a few crazy people that are part of the theater organ world. And that's all right. You know, thank God they were there in the 1950s and 60s because they they saved a lot of organs. This has been absolutely incredible. Um, I've learned so much. Ken, thank you so much for being here, for coming on the show. Appreciate the invitation, Aaron. And thank you for a wonderful introduction ahead of the uh, silent film. You were involved deeply in researching Chaplin and all that. So (laughs) on the night of the gold rush, Aaron introduced the event to the audience and that was great uh, it was awesome it was awesome and I, I can't wait to get back to the fox and uh and hear you play i'll be listening with an, a whole new appreciation we will suggest to people two things one come down and say hi but two understand i can't talk and play at the same time my concentration is so i've never understood how the people years ago who played at the cocktail lounges could carry on conversations and and with their right hand playing the melody their left hand sipping on a cocktail um carry on with with people and, and never miss a beat i can't do that but i'll but i'll acknowledge your presence that's for sure but i won't be talking to you <laughs> <laughs> that's okay my, mighty mo demands my concentration <laughs> understandable yeah. we'll just enjoy the music thank you so much for listening and until next time that's a wrap mm-hmm.